welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Kristen Eichhammer. And joining us once again is one of our favorite people, Heritage Foundation Senior Legal Fellow, Sarah Partial-Perry. Sarah, Hi, back. ladies. How are you? <laughs> Always good to have you here. Well, we're starting out today with a little bit of a fun question. So now that we have this expert on space with Kristen, because she used to work at NASA, I want to know aliens. Lots of people have strong opinions. Do they exist? Yes or no? Kristen, you're the expert here. Yeah, expert is a loose term that you're using there. But <laughs> to uh, to put my two cents in on the matter, I think aliens in in a way that we don't think of them potentially could exist. And the reason I say that actually is because, I mean, we're human, obviously, but there's so many different types of life forms out there, like a little amoebas and all of that, mm. living in water, ice, and all of that fun stuff. Um, I don't know if they're actually existing. This is not my blanket statement saying that I I am speaking for the U.S., that aliens are out there, but they could be. So. But they're probably not little green men. Probably not. Yeah. The, the cute little things from Toy Story, probably more or less complex. I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was, there was some interesting space... Uh, news this week mm-hmm. and discovery. Yeah, no, I'm I'm super excited about it. Actually, um, it was some research from the James Webb Space Telescope, which I actually was able to see during my time at NASA in one of the clean rooms wow. uh, at Goddard, which is actually just up the street from us. Mm-hmm. And basically, these astronomers were able to use some infrared technology, which is how the James Webb Telescope it images really, really far off, distant molecules and space clouds and and all of that fun stuff. And and using this technology, uh, they were able to find some really deep, dark ice. So basically, the infrared camera picked up on molecules um, in this solar cloud, which is where planets um, are formed. And it found some of the basic elements of life and some basic molecules like ammonia, methanol, methane, and carbonyl sulfide, which is kind of the makings of a planet, a recipe for, you know, future planets and stars where life potentially could be. So interesting. Yeah. I'm so fascinated by space, Kristen, because I just know so little about it. So I, I love that we have we have your expertise here to break it down, even if you say you're not an expert. In my book, compared to what I know about space, and you know you're an expert. So. Uh, and also for me, guys. <laughs> I've been silent this segment for a reason, and that's because I have nothing meaningful to contribute. <laughs> no, it's definitely, space is hard. It's really fun. But, I mean, there's there's a lot out there, and there's a lot to learn, so... So, as long as you come at, at it with an open mind. Yeah. Well, and, and to quote Kamala Harris, yes. space is big. It is. And it space connects us big. all. And it connects us all. Yeah, we're going to talk more about that in a few minutes. Kristen, go ahead. Let us know what our plans are for today. Up on today's Problematic Women, Vice President Kamala Harris appears to have intentionally omitted the right to life in the Declaration of Independence when speaking to pro-abortion advocates. And crime is on the rise. We explain some of the possible reasons for this. Plus, we are not the only ones who enjoy quoting Taylor Swift lyrics. Lawmakers are doing it, too. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Women of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find the stories that we think are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. 
If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right. Let's get to it. So we have all read the Declaration of Independence. Some of us probably had to memorize it or portions of it in high school. And we we know, we all know this line that it guarantees three rights. It says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are one, life two, liberty, and three, the pursuit of happiness. But Vice President Kamala Harris appears to have intentionally omitted one of these three rights in a recent speech in which she quoted the declaration. Harris was giving a speech on the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, and she was talking about how some GOP lawmakers have called for a federal ban on abortion, which she was arguing is not right. So this is Harris speaking to a crowd of pro-abortion supporters in Tallahassee, Florida on Sunday. A promise we made in the Declaration of Independence that we are each endowed with the right to liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Do you all think that the vice president just kind of thought, oh, no one's going to notice that I forget to add the right to life in here? It's fine. I can just omit it and no one will know. You know, I would not hold our vice president up as a paragon of intellectualism. Um, she she is not what appears to be some kind of um, a mental giant. She's committed gaffes in multiple other formats. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say in this situation, if you believe that was an accidental omission, I have swampland in Arkansas to sell you. So (laughs) in this particular circumstance, speaking at a pro-abortion event, and I will provide some context here in that Florida, obviously led by Governor Ron DeSantis, is a pro-life state. And in fact, they passed a 15-week abortion ban that is currently under consideration by the high court in Florida. They are clearly interested in protecting the life of the unborn. She was speaking to a pro-abortion crowd. Of course, that narrative on protecting life, on an unalienable right to life, is not something she wants to trumpet. And that's where our founding documents get a little bit inconvenient for people who are bound by the same principles of American governance and its founding. Yeah, no, I I think this just again raises the alarms of can we trust these leaders? I actually keep a pocket constitution and a pocket declaration of independence in my purse with Good me. Good for you, Kristen. Since COVID. I love it. Because I want to know my rights. And it's just the blatant disregard of what our country was established on and what the values that created this beautiful free land that we live in, where we have the right to hold different beliefs. It's just very discouraging to see that our vice president, a second in command, cares so little about what those documents um, say and, mm-hmm. and use it then, like you said, strategically against 
the American people themselves. Yeah. Well, and Sarah, like you mentioned, this is not the first time. This is far from the first time that we've seen this kind of behavior from the vice president where she says things and you almost take a step back and you say, wait wait a second. Did she really just say that? Was that was that planned? Did someone write that for her? So compliments of the Babylon Bee, they put together a pretty hilarious montage video with a lot of these clips of the gaffes that Vice President Kamala Harris has made. So uh, let's take a listen to one of these. Space is exciting. Space, it affects us all. And it connects us all. Or how about this one? Ukraine is a country in Europe. It exists next to another country called Russia. Russia is a bigger country. Russia is a powerful country. Russia decided to invade a smaller country called Ukraine. So basically that's wrong. So, you know, when when you hear Kamala Harris say these things, my first question has always been, who is her speechwriter? Who is writing these speeches? Uh, that was the whole premise for the Babylon Bee video. Uh, it's funny. We'll leave it in the show notes so you can watch it. But um, they do this whole spoof on her having a six-year-old speechwriter because sometimes the language that she's using in her speeches sounds about, you know, six-year-old elementary language. But Kamala Harris has actually, she's had three chief speechwriters. Um, her new one, I think everyone had high hopes for. He's written for a number of very predominant figures, including in the Obama administration. Uh, but after after that last speech on Sunday, I'm, I'm wondering if maybe she needs to go back to the drawing board and look again for another speechwriter who can actually make her sound vice presidential. Well, she doesn't seem to be sticking to the script on uh, anything that is prepared for her. We don't know what she's looking at in front of her or whether or not these notes are provided to her in advance. Of course, they ought to be. And that's sort of the way that the um, White House operates, the vice president's office operates. But when she gets up in public, whether she is doing a radio show or she's speaking at a podium or at a public event, I have yet to hear her sound vice presidential Mm -hmm. at all. And she seems to lack fundamental awareness of some of the biggest issues facing our country today. Her description of the Russo-Ukraine conflict that originated in 2014 was laughable. It really is sort of a sad commentary either on what we've become sort of expectant of Mm -hmm. as Americans. We've just accepted this is what our vice president is going to sound like or that level of ignorance about basic fundamental news items, foundational principles, geopolitical conflicts. It's sort of a sad commentary on where we are right now, I think. I think what's scary, too, is she didn't just, you know, overnight become vice president. She was an attorney general and she was a Mm -hmm. senator before this. You would think at some point during those many, many years of public service that she would have learned something about the Ukraine or... I mean, I learned about space when I was in kindergarten. <laughs> like, it's not that hard to pick up on a few of the talking points. <laughs> right. It really isn't. You know, it, it's it's fascinating that this just keeps happening. Uh, and it certainly gives a, a lot of fodder to the media to have a little bit of fun with it, as the, as the Babylon Bee did. Quite entertaining. But stay tuned, because up next, uh, we discuss some of the big crime stories that we're seeing in the news right now. And some of the reasons why crime appears to be on the rise. 
But first, I want to tell you all about one of my favorite ways to get the news and keep up with the issues that I care about. If you are anything like me, you enjoy researching interesting topics on YouTube or maybe just simply being entertained. But sometimes it's really hard to know what information is well-researched and trustworthy. And that is where the Daily Signal YouTube channel comes in. We are constantly posting new videos that are designed to keep you up to date on the news that you care about and give you the data and the facts succinctly and also in an entertaining way. The Daily Signal YouTube channel features policy explainer videos, documentaries, entertaining clips from podcast interviews, and so much more. So go ahead, pull out your phone, and subscribe to the Daily Signal YouTube channel so that you can stay informed and never miss out on the news that actually matters. Okay, are you all true crime fans? Do you all listen to true crime podcasts or watch the shows? Yes, and I have a strange obsession with serial killers. And I like to think it's (laughs) because... What is it with, you know, sort of the the 30 to 50-year-old demographic of American suburban women that is fascinated by true crime podcasts and serial killer documentaries? Now, mm. I like to say it's because I'm a frustrated federal criminal prosecutor. Mm. That was, at one point, my desired aim in mm-hmm. going to law school. And then my father, who is also a lawyer, said, probably not not the safest for you, young lady. <laughs> Maybe civil litigation is more your speed, and that's where I ended up. But to this day, I'm still fascinated by it. You're living your dreams out through those. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's exactly it. I I have, a couple times in my life, I have gotten in to true crime shows, uh, but sometimes I'm just like, this is too far. This is mm. This is too much. And it just sort of follows you afterwards. And I'll catch myself thinking back on like, Oh, like let me let me double check the locks on my door because in that one mm. episode, <laughs> she didn't double check the locks, and this happened. Right? No, I mean even with the DC sniper, I remember following that story through a true crime podcast, and man, for weeks I could not go to certain places that I knew he had been to because they were you know down the street. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, right now think about we have a number of tragically true crime really. Uh, I can't call it shows. It's it's reality that's playing out before us on the news. You have, of course, the tragedy of the, the four murders that took place uh, of the college students in Idaho. Then you have the Alex Murdoch trial. Uh, he is a former prominent attorney that has uh, is being accused of having killed his wife and his son to cover up financial crimes. Sarah, because you are an attorney and you you had that kind of dream of of prosecution and all of those things. Do you find yourself when you're watching things like what is unfolding uh, with uh, with these various trials that we're seeing, like in Idaho, do you find yourself thinking, oh, man, if if I was prosecuting, this is how I would do it? And why did he ask that question? And I, I do, actually. And sometimes I yell at the TV screen. <laughs> it's like football. 
Now, of course, you're not seeing the entirety of what happens in the trial. If you're seeing these, you see often, very often, news clips. So you don't know what the prosecution has advanced in terms of an overhaul comprehension, uh, overhaul comprehensive story of the actual crime itself. Remember, the whole goal is to get the jury to be able to accept a position one way or the other. And here, obviously, from the prosecutor's standpoint, it's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And it's a great criminal standard. It has worked for so long because when you are dealing with the deprivation of someone's life by putting them in prison or someone's um, liberty, obviously, if these are individuals who are ultimately going to get the death sentence, depending on the state in which they live, you want to make sure that these individuals can sleep at night recognizing the gravity of what they've actually done. But I find it very interesting in a lot of these cases, um, we're seeing a rise in crime generally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, two of my legal colleagues, uh, Cully Stimson and Zach Smith, have have written about sort of the rise of the rogue prosecutor. And Mm -hmm. I think that's so relevant to what we're seeing with this increased generalized criminal wave Mm -hmm. coast to coast, not just with the misdemeanors that we're seeing, for example, in California, the snatch and grabs, breaking things, breaking windows, looting CVSs, looting Louis Vuitton stores. But we're seeing situations like this at the more granular level where these are states who are having to deal with high impact cases. And many of them, they've got resources that are spread very, very thin because they're having to deal with crime waves in addition to cases of this nature. For example, the Idaho murders, Mm -hmm. which are highly labor intensive, the investigation man hours that went into this. And, you know, for a long time, all of the uh, prosecutors um, and the actual police force were sort of pilloried in the media because we were all saying, well, where are they? Why haven't they named a suspect? And what we've learned since is that they were doing meticulous, painstaking research and investigation. And sure enough, they seem to have zeroed in to the number one suspect, if not the individual who committed these crimes. But um, it's very interesting. What we see is often very different from what's going on behind the scenes. But I think generally we really, really need to be supporting law enforcement. And in addition, we need to be making sure that we're voting out these these rogue prosecutors. Yeah. Well, Sarah, I mean, I, I was curious just looking this week at just the crime that we've seen in the news with multiple mass shootings, including the two that happened in California, yeah. um, the the Fox News um, staffer who got beat up on the subway. I mean, it's like, what what on earth is going on? So I I dug into some of the, the statistics to kind of look at, OK, what have we seen over the past several years? Well, it's interesting to see the spike that happened during COVID because between uh, between 2019 to 2020, crime jumped over 28 percent, according to macro trends. And then mm. if you look at between 2020 and 2021, there was more than a 5 percent increase in violent crimes and more than a 4 percent increase in murders. Wow. I mean, is, is that 
what are what do you all think are are the factors at play? So we have the rogue prosecutors, that situation, and the fact that maybe people are more willing to commit crimes if yeah. they know that they're not going to be prosecuted. Absolutely. Are there other factors at play here? I think for me, generally, and I'm speaking as a parent, I'm looking at sort of the moral devolution Mm -hmm. of where we are as a country, the principles we value, Mm -hmm. what we celebrate, what we support. And we are, I think, in many respects, so much more concerned with sort of the me-centric, what can I get out of life? Everyone has to sort of cater to my needs. Here are my pronouns. Um, You know, here's how I feel microaggressed that we're not focusing on general moral principles, whatever your sort of spiritual upbringing and, and background is. I have raised my children in a Christian faith. I see so many of these principles that our founders espoused in our founding documents, nonetheless, um, tying back to Kamala Harris, endowed (laughs) by our creator with unalienable rights. But I think we're we have really skated the line on what is acceptable right now in culture and what isn't. Mm -hmm. I give you drag queen story hours. Now, I'm not going to tie that to an increase in violence. I will tie it to moral breakdown culturally. Absolutely. I think that you were spot on, too, with the the idea of how does it affect me and how does this influence my well-being. And um, coming from Chicago, I I didn't grow up there as a a young adult, but I was there for the first part of my life. And parents quickly moved us out of there um, just because it is one of I mean, it was called Chirac for a while because there were so many, so many shooting sprees and issues with gun violence. And I think it's it's sad because right now I actually looked this up on the Crane Chicago business website. And they did a poll that basically asked out of 10, a score of 10, how residents in all of the different neighborhoods of Chicago felt the safety rating was. And the average score was a 5.02. And like you said, that that definitely means people are feeling the impacts in the cities. But, you know, like my parents, a lot of people, instead of sticking to their morals and making the city a city for them and a safe place for everyone, they're leaving. And I I know your colleagues um, in the Mies Center kind of did a a cool deep dive into this and found that, you know, Democrats are saying uh, red states are largely to blame for the spike in crime. But really, it's the blue cities run by the Muriel Bowsers, Miss Lightfoot, um, like all of these people that Mm -hmm. they're not doing anything to hold these criminals accountable and they just do not care about their constituents enough to make actual change. They're too focused on social issues and being reelected. Well, and that is a perfect segue into speaking of not holding people accountable. Look at what happened outside the homes of the justices. You had Mm -hmm. protesters repeatedly and still, still protesting. On Sunday, our colleague who's been on the show, Mary Margaret, she went to Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh's home where there was a group of protesters marching in front of his home at night. And this is what it sounded like. Cut his time short. A rapist should not rule the court. Cut his time short. A rapist should not rule the court. So U.S. Marshals were present 
but no arrests were made. And Sarah, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there <laughs> might be a federal law that says that this is illegal, what these individuals did. Not not only is there a federal law, there's also a law in Virginia and in Maryland that prevents disturbing the peace and quiet of individuals at their place of residence. But Section 1507 of the U.S. Criminal Code makes it a federal offense to picket or demonstrate outside a sitting federal justice's place of residence or, quote, near such place of residence. Uh, I would say sidewalk is near, Mm -hmm. though the U.S. Marshals at the time indicated, well, it's not a violation because they're on the sidewalk. I would say sidewalk is plenty near enough. Mm -hmm. I mean, this has been going on for months. It's like, what is it going to take for individuals in power to actually take some action and say enough is enough uh, and you're done breaking the law to these protesters? This is also the same Supreme Court justice that had to be escorted through the back of a steak restaurant, you know, in D.C. because Mm -hmm. protesters literally found him. I I don't remember how or what the motivation there was, but they they tracked him down in D.C. and and tried to pressure him and make him feel uncomfortable. And, you know, and there was an assassination. Someone admitted to the fact that they had plans to assassinate Justice Brett Kavanaugh. And yet U.S. Marshals are just kind of letting these protests continue, which ultimately I will say it is it's not their call. Someone above them is pulling the strings. Well, the problems Department of Justice who likes Mm -hmm. to pick and choose what actual federal criminal laws they are going to enforce and against which people. I give you, for example, the FACE Act, which is freedom of access to clinic entrances, which doesn't just protect abortion clinics. It also protects crisis pregnancy centers and houses of worship. Now, we saw a wave of violence, arson, vandalization against houses of worship and against crisis pregnancy centers post Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, the Supreme Court opinion from June of last year overturning Roe versus Wade. And yet, Crickets on investigation. Where is Merrick Garland when it comes to arresting individuals who are part of, for example, a group called Jane's Revenge, Mm -hmm. which has taken distinct, overt and very clear credit for these federal offenses? Yeah. I mean, what is the point of the law if you don't apply it fairly and equally to all? But speaking of controversy... There is uh, quite a bit of controversy over Ticketmaster and Taylor Swift. So let's talk a little bit about this story and why lawmakers are refusing to shake it off. If you, uh, oh, <laughs> cute. wow, Kristen that Taylor. was amazing. <laughs> I loved that, and that totally set the tone. Yeah. So Republican and Democrat senators tore into Ticketmaster on Tuesday after the company's dominance in the ticket industry created bad blood with Taylor mm, Swift fans. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. See what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> the Senate Judiciary Committee debated possible actions to prevent ticket sale disasters like that seen during Swift's era's tour sale. While many music fans are interested in solutions that will make ticket buying easier and more affordable, Swift fans couldn't help but notice senators leaning into some of Swift's lyrics throughout the hearing. Yeah, let's take a listen to some of the comments that they made. This is compliments of The Independent and the montage that they put together. You can't have too much consolidation, something that unfortunately for this country, 
as a uh, ode to Taylor Swift, I will say, we know all too well. A lot of people seem to think that's somehow a solution. I think it's a, it's a nightmare dressed like a daydream. A few million Taylor Swift fans would respond, this is why we can't have nice things. But once again, she's cheer captain and I'm on the bleachers. Ticketmaster ought to look in the mirror and say, I'm the problem. It's me. So in response to all of this questioning, Live Nation's president and CFO, Joe Birchtold, blamed industrial scale ticket scalping for the incident, which is really him blaming bots. Mm -hmm. Um, But obviously that doesn't make the fans less upset. Yeah. Um, And Live Nation, they're the parent company over Ticketmaster, correct? Well, here's what happened. Let me give you a little. She's going to break it down. I'm going to break it down. Um, There was a merger, a huge merger between Live Nation and Ticketmaster. Now, together, those two organizations now having merged into one corporation, they have about 80% of the industry for all ticket sales in the United States. Now, that looks, I think, to a lot of people like a monopoly, hence the hearing we just saw on Capitol Hill. But 80% of a competitive market, when that system goes down, when those individuals are not able to get the tickets they've already paid for, it is such a widespread problem that it warranted, obviously, a Senate hearing, which which is very cleverly where we hear the (laughs) lyrics being brought in by some of these sitting senators. Well, when it comes to issues like monopolies, Sarah, what what is the role of the government to step in and say, okay, you got too big and now you have to break apart in some way. You have to share this space with other competitors. So it's a very tricky balance because there are three primary antitrust laws on the books. So we were talking about sort of selective enforcement. Our philosophy is always let's use what we have before we go passing new legislation or justifying increased federal governmental intervention, Mm -hmm. right? Let's use what we have first and see whether or not that's effective in dealing with the problem. Three main antitrust laws. Most people know the Sherman Antitrust Act. That's the number one. It is actually a criminal offense. It outlaws bid rigging and um, what would look like conspiracy uh, in any other context. The Clayton Act, which is another one, and then the Federal Trade Commission Act. The three of those together, both civil and criminal penalties, prevent organizations from getting so big that they have an outsized influence on the market or they are actually colluding to change what happens in the market distinctly. So as a result of this hearing, what I'm hopeful is that – and Senator Lee kind of referenced this – We can strike a fine balance between encouraging the government to get more involved, but by the same token, also recognizing when organizations like this become so big that the services, the products they've been contracted to provide can't actually be provided in the first place. And I think that's where we are with this this Ticketmaster One Nation situation. It was Definitely interesting, too, because you're right. They, they've they gotten, you know, 80 percent of, of the market. But something that 
could be considered a part of the product is that service fee that they've started to implement. And Mm -hmm. I thought what was most startling to me is those service fees would range anywhere from 27% to 75%. So at that point, you're not paying for the artist to see them. You're paying for Ticketmaster, Live Nation to give you those tickets, essentially, and and run those venues. And um, it's definitely unsettling. I think another interesting point um, was brought up by one of the singers from the band Lawrence. Clyde Lawrence actually testified um, at this hearing. And he discussed how those ticket fees largely hurt the bands as well. Mm. So it's not just the customers. It's also the bands. And his explanation was, you know, Ticketmaster could hypothetically charge you know $30 per ticket, but then they'd add fees to bump that price up to $42 and then only pay the bands $12. So on top of that, they are then charging the bands certain fees. So there's service fees on the customer and then service fees on the bands. And he even said that, like, at one point he faced a fee of $250 just to have 10 towels available to the band while they were playing. So I think I'm excited to see what happens and and how we're going to use those three antitrust laws to hold these these companies accountable because, I mean, it's not fair to the bands. It's not fair to the the customers and definitely not American. Well, and at the end of the day, it's like artists like Taylor Swift that have so much money that they don't even know what to do with. They're going to be fine. They're If Ticketmaster doesn't change their ways, they're going to be fine. But for the smaller bands, this is the difference between them making it or not making mm-hmm. it and them getting a start in the industry or not. And I, I think it's it's encouraging to see that that there is a little bit of movement here and just that, that this news is getting out there and people are becoming aware of how this actually works because that's ridiculous for Ticketmaster to just be raking it in on the backs of these really, really small artists. They, they sell – half a billion tickets a year. I mean, their their market dominance is ridiculous. We want to protect free enterprise, right? Mm-hmm. It's worked. Capitalism has worked for centuries. It is precisely the economic theory on which so many businesses have risen to success, whether you're a small mom and pop or whether you're a major conglomerate. But in a situation like this, I think it takes this kind of a debacle Mm -hmm. where the website crashes, everybody's lost money, they cancel the concert to make people sort of sit up and pay attention. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Sarah, we want to thank you for your time today and for joining us, as always. It's always a pleasure. Love being on with my fellow problematic women. Yes. Until next time. But stay tuned, because up next, we crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. Five days a week, two episode formats, one mission. To deliver the news you care about and analysis on the biggest issues facing America. The Daily Signal podcast brings you two episodes every day in the same podcast feed. Each morning, catch interviews with policymakers, leading experts, and conservative activists as we discuss some of the greatest challenges facing our country and offer solutions for a brighter future. And every weekday at 5 p.m., we bring you the top news of the day. These are the headlines you care about. Subscribe to the Daily Signal podcast wherever you get your podcasts you never miss out on our morning interviews or evening news. Now it is that time once again, one of our favorite times of the week here on Problematic Women. Time to crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. And the crown goes to the Women of the March for Life. 
So if you came to the March for Life in Washington, D.C. on Friday, we just want to thank you. That takes a lot of sacrifice. You maybe had to take off time from work or school. You maybe traveled a long way in order to march in the cold and stand up for life. That's a sacrifice. And it's granted a small one when we think about all of the lives affected, all of the lives lost by abortion. But it's a big deal to stand up and be a part of standing up. Um, and Kristen, it was really cool to be out there and see that there were so many people. There, there were genuine concerns that, all right, Roe v. Wade has already been overturned. This March for Life, it's probably going to be super small. Who knows how many people are going to come? No, it was a massive it was crowd. It was huge. And I was just so blown away by all of the young people, so many young women, so many young women who were standing out there saying, I'm going to continue to be a voice for life and recognizing that the fight for life, it's not over. Yeah, it's it's absolutely not. It's stronger than ever. And I think, you know, we had a beautiful day when for everyone to come out to mm-hmm. and, and just stand up for, for life. Um, if you guys have photos, you should absolutely yeah. send them to us at Problematic Women on Instagram. Yes. Um, we'd love to see how y'all celebrated the March for Life. But yeah. 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 If you want to either send, you can either DM them to us on the Problematic Women Instagram account um, or post them on your story and tag Problematic Women. We would love to share them because it's just incredible to see so many young women who are saying, okay, this is this is something that my generation is taking ownership of, and we are the generation of life. So thank you and congrats to all of the women who participated in the March for Life for being the Problematic Women of the Week. And with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Yes, we love it when you subscribe and share. It's so helpful for us to hear your feedback. So just take five minutes, go to Apple Podcasts, wherever you like to listen to podcasts, pop in, leave us a review. Thank you for everyone who did that during the Christmas season. Loved sending you guys those tumblers for those who did it. We'll do that again at some point, probably this year. Um, But truly love hearing your feedback. Have a great week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.